All right. We're still in the in the morning. Good morning. Uh, yes. Thank you, sir. Genesis chapter four, please. Genesis chapter four. Uh, as you know, uh, Valentine's Day is quickly approaching, and so Harry asked me last week, "What am I speaking on?" And I told him, "I said I have no idea where I'm going, and uh, thinking about it." And Valentine's coming up, so the obvious answer to that question uh, is now: Let's what's the subject that we should talk about right before Valentine's Day? Sin, sin, of course, sin. So <laughs> my mind works a little different than other people. Uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, uh, dear Heavenly Father. I thank you for. Uh, your word this morning and uh, the reminder, uh, the continued reminder that we need about things such as our sin, but also the grace of God. And so I pray as we go through this that uh, you will open our minds and hearts to your truth. Uh, give us understanding, Lord. We're going to take a long stare at sin, and then we need to bring ourselves back and look at Christ and the cross uh, and understand that we're not there yet and there is a fight. And so I pray, Lord, uh, for each one of us because we all deal with sin. We're all fighting something, as was said earlier, and help us to fight uh, uh, for your glory and for the exaltation of Christ in our life that others might see you more clearly in us. And so we ask your blessing on our time and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we began looking at the doctrine of anthropology and part of that is uh, looking at sin or homodiology is what it is referred to many times. Uh, we looked at last week how man was created in the image of God. He is created in holiness uh, and he was created in resemblance to his maker and we went through a number of things that uh, that means and today we're going to move on to more of the main body of our doctrinal statement. I'm not going through it and saying this is what this means, this is what this means. I'm just sort of t stepping back from it and talking about really what it contains in a more general sense. And next week what we will do is we'll finish up talking about total depravity depravity and also uh, total inability in that as well. And our doctrinal statement states, we believe that man was created in holiness under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that holy and happy state, in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, not by constraint, but choice being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. Once again, I quote this verse last week out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices or schemes. So God has created man in a holy and pure state pure goodness uh, but in that holy and good state God put 
obedience to the test. And you have your Bibles open to Genesis 4. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is where we see the word sin mentioned for the first time in Scripture. And it says there, looking at verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 4, Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, Sin is personified in this verse, and the Bible depicts sin as a wild animal crouching at the door, ready to seize a person and destroy them. Quite a vivid picture, uh, but an accurate picture of sin. And we will see why it is described like this. But before that, I want to give you a picture of sin in general. We must understand the nature of sin. In order to understand ourselves and to understand God, it is of utmost importance we understand the nature of sin. If we misunderstand sin and what it is, we make it less than what it actually is. That means our lives and our souls are in great danger. If we do not see sin as vicious and a mortal enemy, a persistent power, then we will be constantly overtaken by it. Joel Beakey writes that one might think that as often as we sin, we must be all experts on the subject. However, sin is amazingly deceitful and blinding in its efforts on the human heart. He goes on to say that sin wraps itself in a cloak, spreads a broad, dense fog, waits for darkest night, and moves in stealthily. So to understand this enemy of our soul, we must listen carefully to what the Word of God says about it. We must pray earnestly that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our minds and hearts to see sin for what it is. So what is the nature of sin? And I'm going to give you six things that sin is not. And I am taking some of these from Beakey's Systematic Theology. Number one, sin is not an illusion. It's not an illusion. It's not some sort of perception that humans have. It's a real evil. Uh, If you talk to enough college-age students today, you will find that that is a very real uh, thing in their thinking that it's just an illusion. It's just your perception of what is right and wrong. And we know that this is not an illusion because the Word of God tells us we must have God's perspective on sin because God's perspective is always true and right. God sees sin and He hates it. It says in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. God knows completely what man is like. He knows His true state, and He knows that all people are sinful and corrupt. 
Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, Yahweh looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who has insight, anyone who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Altogether they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It is elementary to see that sin is not an illusion. Because of the corruption in the world, you just look around and you can see it. Turn on your TV and you will see corruption. There's only two reasons a person would say that sin is an illusion. One, they're completely delusional. And two, it is to let themselves off the hook for the sins that they enjoy committing. So sin is not an illusion. All mankind is sinful and corrupt. Number two, sin is not an eternal reality. We are not dualists. There is only one eternal being, and that is the triune God. There is not two eternal principles, one good and the other evil. Evil angels were not always so, but fell from their original state. Sin did not have a place in Adam at first, but entered the world by Adam's sin. Sin was not in existence in eternity past. Number three, sin is not a substance. I uh, came to hear this from R.C. Sproul, he was talking about it, that sin is not a thing. It's no thing. It's not a substance or material, but it is the loss and corruption of what God originally made. Sin is not an entity moving about. Now the Bible does, we read in Genesis 4, is personified for us there for our understanding of how sin works in our life and how it, it corrupts and destroys. Sin is a rebellion against the word of a holy, eternal God. Now even though sin is not an eternal reality or a created substance, it does have a corrupting effect. It is like a physical disease. It's like a cancer that moves in and spreads. And it causes the major systems of the body and organs to malfunction and deteriorate. That's what sin does to the life of a person. This is what it's like to have that corrupting effect on our way to heart crime. We were going through Virginia, and um, they put kudzu. They plant it uh, to keep things from washing away and to make things look green and nice. But once you get kudzu in a place, it's almost impossible to get rid of, and it just continues to spread and grow. So every time I see kudzu, I think of sin. That's what sin does into a person's life. Number four, sin is not physical evil. Uh, or natural evil, we might say. Uh, it's not hurricanes, cancer, earthquakes, floods, mudslides. In the garden, God told Adam that if he sinned, he would die. He sinned and suffering was imposed on him. He began to die. They were driven from the garden and the earth has a curse placed on it. These natural evils are not sins. They are consequences of sin. Sin operates in the moral realm. Sin is an offense against a holy God and His law. Hurricanes and earthquakes are not sin, but are the consequences and result of sin and of the fall of man which brought the curse upon the world.
Number five, sin is not merely external action. Eric has been touching on this the last few weeks. Uh, is it sin just when I am moved to action? No, it's not. Uh, it is sin to be moved to action, but there's much more to it. And that is because moral evil resides in the inward thoughts. Genesis 6.5 says, Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus says that the moral evil that takes place is the source is sourced in the human heart. In Mark 7, verses 21 to 23, uh, For from within, out of the heart of men proceeds the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Lewis Burkhoff wrote that sin does not consist only of an overt act, but also in sinful habits and in a sinful condition of the soul. End quote. The sinful actions that we as humans do are the result of sinful thoughts and desires. And what we do is we nurture those sinful thoughts and desires, and then they become actions that spurred on by our sinful motives. And number six, sin is not merely hurting other people. John MacArthur says sin must be understood from a theocentric or God-centered standpoint. At its core, sin is a violation of the creator-creature relationship. Man only exists because God made him. And man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. If you remember Joseph in Genesis 39, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against... God. You have David, when he confesses his sin of adultery and murder, he says it's against you, God. You're the ones that, I, that I've sinned against and done this evil in your sight. Sin is always against God. So yes, we do sin against others and we seek forgiveness and pursue restoration, but we must see sin as primarily against God. So we've seen the general nature of sin. What it's not, but what is it? What is sin? We can define sin this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is ultimately defined in relation to God and to His moral law. Sin includes first act and the attitude. The actions that are sinful are such things as committing murder, lying, stealing. But sin is also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes that God requires of us. For instance, you look at the Ten Commandments and there are actions listed there that are prohibited. But there's also attitudes. An attitude there is, thou shalt not covet. 
You can't really observe covetousness unless you see me on the lot looking at Chevy trail bosses. You may <laughs> know that it's taking place then, but it's an internal thing. It's an attitude. It's not just the act of stealing that's wrong. It's the motive, yeah. an attitude in the heart to want to have what someone else has. When Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, we see attitudes listed there such as anger and lust. Paul gives us a list of attitudes that are fleshly, that are sinful, such things as jealousy, anger, selfishness. These are contrary uh, in living by the Spirit. In fact, the greatest of all commandments require that our hearts be filled with an attitude and motivation of love. Mark 12.30, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So our definition of sin includes actions and attitudes, but also nature. Sin is failure to conform to God in our moral nature. Our nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons is sinful. The Bible tells us that not only do we do sinful acts and have sinful attitudes, but we are sinners by nature. Uh, that's why Paul says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners by nature. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2, so you can see this. You know these verses. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The unbeliever, even when he's asleep, Inside, they possess a sin nature that does not conform to the moral law of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that the wrath of God abides on those who are without Christ, the unrighteous, those who have not been renewed in the inner man and made right with God and have peace with Him. It says in 1 John 3, 4 that sin is lawlessness. All of humanity fails to conform to the moral law of God. Either the law that is written down that was to the Jews or to the law that's written on their heart that operates in the conscience of the Gentiles. So when we define sin biblically, it is a lawlessness against God. Sin is ultimately against Him. And this should emphasize the seriousness of sin. Yes, sin is harmful to us. There is no way, shape, or form that you can make sin out to be something that gives you something good in the end. We think it will, but it never does and it never will. It always destroys, it always tears down. 
And if it doesn't do it now, it will do it later. In fact, the longer that sin goes, the greater the devastation. Sin is a subtle thing, a quick look just to savor the image of another woman, a romantic daydream of a man who is not your husband. But we pass them off because of the culture we live in. It's accepted. It's everywhere. You can't go to the store, turn on the TV, turn around without something in your face. But it's the little things that get a foothold in our life and then they control you. Now, I haven't seen this movie, Gremlins. But from what I understand, it starts out cute and fuzzy and then it gets a little water on it and then it just goes haywire and they're all over the place and that's what sin does. That's what sin does. When we give it a little room in our life, it grows, multiplies, and it becomes out of control. And at first, sin was cute, fun, exciting, and then it grows like a cancer in our lives and it takes over. We no longer control it. It controls us. Whatever pet sins that we nurture and we think that we can control, it's not going to happen. You have to work hard to tear those things out of your life or they will destroy you. They will destroy the things that you love because sin never just affects you. That's why the things we talk about in our society such as uh, same-sex marriage and stuff like that, that's not just about you and what you want to do. That is a deterioration of society itself because it's not done in isolation and even if it is, it has ripple effects. The most buried and concealed sin in your life never just affects you. It affects all the people that are connected to you. But what makes sin so sinful and so destructive is not what it does to other people or even to ourselves. It is because sin is directly opposed. It is directly opposite of all that is in the character of God. God eternally hates sin. It is the opposite of who He is. It is rebellion against Him. This is what makes sin so serious. Yes, it has its destructive qualities in our own lives and the lives of those around us. But the ultimate issue is what does God think about what I'm doing, what I'm saying, where I'm going, what I'm thinking. And sin is serious for the believer. Yes, praise God, we are saved from our sins, past, present, and future. But we do not sin that grace may abound. Salvation is not a license to sin, but a license to pursue holiness. Turn with me to Philippians 2. We don't have this idea of let go and let God theology. Not with the battle of sin. Philippians chapter 2. I want you to look at verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's two sides of the sanctification coin here. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
Two sides of the same coin here. Sanctification coin. We are to work out, not work for our salvation. We work out our salvation means to bring it to its completion or fulfillment. This is obedience and diligence applied to the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And then verse 13 tells us that it is God who energizes the desires and actions of the believer. But we have a part in this. Therefore, as believers, we are to be all the more diligent, striving, fighting to eradicate each and every sin that God brings to our mind and exposes in our life. And we do that for His glory. Sin and its consequences are still devastating to us and all those connected to us. And we can be certain that out of love, our Heavenly Father will bring discipline. It has that ripple effect that moves through churches. It moves through families. It moves to our friends. But our purpose is ultimately to glorify God in the way that we live. And that is the ultimate motivation to deal radically with sin in our lives. We are clear about how pervasive sin is in this world. We see sin in other people. We know how we have been hurt by others' sins. And we know that we are sinful ourselves. Everywhere we turn, we see it. It is pervasive. It affects everyone around us, and therefore it affects everything around us. But the question then comes, where did this come from? We have mentioned that it's not some sort of thing or entity that has existed uh, along God throughout eternity. So how did it first come into the universe? The first thing that we need to do is we need to go to the Scriptures to understand what God says about His relationship to sin. First, the Bible is clear that God has not, does not, and will not ever sin. God cannot sin. It is clear that God is not to blame for sin. Just as our doctrinal statement says, it is human beings who have sinned. It is the angels that have sinned. And in both cases, they did it willfully and by voluntary choice. To blame God for sin would be blasphemy against the character of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, and then we'll go to James 1, where we have already been this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, I want you to look at verse 4. It says there, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Elihu in the book of Job correctly said, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. In fact, it is impossible for God to even desire to do wrong. Uh, even the desire to do wrong is sin itself. James 1.13 You've seen this this morning. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So it is clear from Scripture that God is not tempted by evil, and He does not tempt anyone to evil. 
Now we must not go to the other side of this as well and make sin sort of some eternal entity uh, that is equal to God in power. That is dualism and that is wrong thinking. There is only one eternal existing entity, being, and that is the eternal God, Yahweh. We also need to make it clear that God is never surprised by sin. It's not that He created a perfect world and then outside of his control everything went south God is omnipotent he's all powerful there is nothing more powerful than God he is sovereign he is in control of this universe completely so even though we must never say that God has sinned nor is he the one to be blamed for sin we must also affirm what Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will King Nebuchadnezzar rightly said in Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can strike against his hand or say to him what have you done so when we understand that God doesn't sin he doesn't tempt man to sin we also understand that God is sovereign and that he does according to the counsel of his will we come to the conclusion that God did ordain that sin would come into the world But sin comes into the world through the voluntary choices of moral creatures. Sin has entered our world through Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, Sin is on us. James 1.14 this morning. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So we have looked at a number of things relating to sin. Its origin, we've defined it, we've talked about its nature. But what I want to do is take a look at what for many human beings would be considered a not so bad thing. When we think of bad sins, we think of things as rape and murder and terrorism and the like. But the first sin, the sin that plunged the entire human race into sin, was simply eating a piece of fruit that God said, don't eat. And what that tells us is that God hates all sin, not just the big ones. Yes, He hates murder. Yes, He hates terrorism. Yes, He hates adultery. Yes, He hates divorce. But He also hates what we call white lies or exaggerations of the truth. Because truth is distorted when we do that. He hates pride. He hates the sin of disobedience. God hates any and all sin. And someone might say, so what's the big deal about someone picking some fruit off of a tree and eating it? That's kind of saying getting all bent out of shape because a child disobeys their parents and takes a cookie out of the cookie jar when they're told not to. What's the big deal? Aren't those similar? And the answer is yes, they're similar. They're sin. They're sin and God hates both of them. That child's disobedience, the sin of that disobedience is hated just as much as that first sin in the garden. Now different sins do have different consequences to them. Obviously me being lifted up in pride is going to have different consequences than if I murder someone after church. But both are sin and God hates both of them and both of them without Christ 
Paying for those brings the full wrath of God for eternity. So the sin in the garden of picking a piece of fruit and eating it, God hates that. The sin of a child being told not to take something and then they take it and turn around and do it, God hates that as well. He eternally hates sin. And I want to stress this because if we don't see the seriousness of our sin and the destructiveness of it, then it will take us. It will take us. So let me show you why God hates all sin and why we should take all sin in our lives seriously. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Actually, turn back to chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And look at verse 16. It says in Genesis 2.16, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Adam and Eve's first command to them was, Do not commit acts of terrorism. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. But it's simply don't eat the fruit of that one tree over there. No other prohibitions whatsoever. No other commands whatsoever. You can eat anything else here, but don't eat the one fruit on the tree. But what is that? What is what is taking place in that moment when Adam and Eve did the one thing that God told them not to do? And then I want us to look at that and translate that to our own lives and once again see the seriousness of sin. So first, Adam and Eve make a statement about consequences when they take this fruit. When we are sinning and when they sin, we're saying God doesn't mean what He says. God doesn't mean what He says. There's no consequences. God said that Adam and Eve would die if they ate the fruit. But what does Satan say? Look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. Let's hear what Satan says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. You surely will not die. They really did not believe that there were going to be consequences to their sin. God said you're going to die. Uh, You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Sin's not going to have any consequences to you. And so what they do is they conduct an experiment here is what Adam and Eve does. Does God really mean what He says? And this is what we do when we sin. When we sin, we're bringing into question the goodness, the wisdom and knowledge of eternal God. We look around and we really think God doesn't notice or He doesn't see. Or maybe we've even become complacent and we think He doesn't care. 
We see what the world does. We see how it acts. We see how it fulfills its lust and desires. And it seems to just continue on each day. And maybe God just doesn't really care anymore. My friends, He cares. And sin has to be completely dealt with. Every single sin. Nobody gets by with anything because God means what He says. He says there are consequences to sin. There are There is the consequence of eternal hell to dismiss God and His only provision for sin, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, yes, our sins are paid for. Christ has taken past, present, and future. And we don't live by legalistic principles that we have to win God's favor and His love, but God has promised His children that He will discipline those whom He loves. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6. I don't know about you, but growing up, I didn't like discipline. I got a lot of discipline, a whole lot of discipline. Living in the Bible Belt, and there's a whole lot of belt that came with that Bible. Uh, So it was a regular occurrence at school, and then it was a regular occurrence at home. I didn't like discipline, uh, but, you know, I think I was just hard-headed and stubborn and uh, just did what I wanted to do. Uh, and had to take the discipline. But I don't want to be disciplined by my Heavenly Father, even when it's done out of love. Uh, He has a way of dealing with things that fit perfectly with the sins that we want to stay attached to. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He flogs every son whom He receives. Skip down to verse 11. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I know that my Heavenly Father loves me and accepts me on the basis of what Christ has done on my behalf, but He will not let me wander. In His love, He will bring me back. And you know that discipline at the hand of a loving father is not pleasant, but it is good. Many times the results of a believer's sin are the natural consequences that come into our lives that God is using as discipline to bring us back into proper fellowship with Him and fellowship with the church. When I sin, in a way, I am saying that God, there are no consequences. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Secondly, when Adam and Eve sin and when we sin, we're saying that God does not tell the truth. God does not tell the truth. In verse 5, I'm trying to emphasize once again the seriousness of sin. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is God right? Is God telling Adam and Eve the truth? The serpent suggests that it would be right for them to eat because if they ate, they would become like God. 
Adam and Eve begin to trust their own evaluation of what is right and what is good rather than allowing God's Word to define what is right and wrong. And the Bible tells us in verse 6 of Genesis 3, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate it. When when we sin, what we're doing is we're saying, I trust my own evaluation of what is right and what is good. But we should be relying on what God's Word says is right and good. Do you know what Adam and Eve are doing here? They are coming to the conclusion, and I can't take credit for this. My wife's the one that mentioned this. They are coming to the conclusion that God is the devil and that the devil is God. That God is the one that doesn't mean what He says. That God is the deceiver. And that Satan is telling them the truth. And we go, how could they do such a thing? But that's exactly what we do when we choose sin. We're choosing to believe that God is withholding good from us and that He is deceiving us and that He is lying to us and that our flesh and the world and the devil, they're the ones that's right. We choose to believe our own truth instead of taking God at His word. So when Adam and Eve sinned, and when we sin, we're saying there are no consequences. We're also saying that God doesn't tell the truth. And lastly, we're saying, I am God. I am God. Look at verse 5, the last line in the verse, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When we sin, we stop seeing ourselves as creatures created by God dependent on Him and always subordinate to Him. But we start to see ourselves independent from God and we become tempted to put ourselves in the place of God. We will be the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. I will be the one that decides the joys and pleasures and blessings I will have. When I sin, I say there are no consequences. That God is not telling the truth. And I'm saying that I am God. That's how serious sin is. All sin. And that is not to mention the damning effects if you don't know Christ and haven't repented of sin. Now praise God for His mercy, His grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. For without that, none of us could stand before Him. You see why we can't stand before Him on our own merit. Look at what sin is. So out of love, we come to Christ... We're saved, we've repented of our sins out of love, out of gratitude for accomplishing our redemption. We serve and obey Him. And with a full heart, we seek to tear sin from our lives. And when we do sin, we're quick to confess it and then make no provision for the flesh again. It is a very comforting thing to know that my Heavenly Father will pursue me when I go astray. It is a comforting thing to know that I cannot be plucked from His hands. It's wonderful to know that He loves me the same on my bad days as He does my quote-unquote good days. Even my good days are filled with sin. 
Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue sanctification. This is not work salvation. This is speaking of practical peace and righteousness. Positionally, a believer is already at peace and is already righteous. But practically, we've got a lot of work to do. Because we are at peace with God, we should be peacemakers. Because we are counted righteous, we should strive to live righteously. So how do we strive to live righteously? I'm just going to give you a few thoughts uh, at the end of this. Turn to Proverbs 16.3. How do we fight sin? How do we strive to live righteously? Three things. And what we have to have is we have to have the help of Almighty God to defeat sin in our life. Number one, Proverbs 16.3 Commit your works to Yahweh and your plans will be established. Commit your works to Yahweh, number one. Literally it says, Roll on to Yahweh your works. We should submit all of our deeds to God for His assessment. If one heeds this admonition here, his plans will be established. The very act of submitting our deeds to divine appraisal will keep us from much sin in the journey of progressive sanctification. We need to be God-centered, Christ-centered in our thoughts about what we're doing, how we're dressing, what about our pride? What is this? It should be constantly, God should be in the center of all of that. And everything that we're doing, we're giving to Him for appraisal. Would God approve of this? How do we strive to live righteously? Look at Proverbs 1.7. Fighting sin in Proverbs 1.7. We commit our works to Yahweh and then we see the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge there in Proverbs 1.7. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. This is the grand summary of the whole book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, as it states later. Solomon begins his lesson on true wisdom by laying down the first principle and basis of it, which is the fear of the Lord. This means reverent trust, love, and obedience towards Yahweh. The one who fears God will fear to sin, lest he should displease God. This is not all about the ripple effects of sin in our own lives. This is about my relationship to God and my displeasing God and my glorifying God. I think for us to really deal with sin, we have to look at it in those terms. I think the problem is, is we look on ground level and we think the pleasure for the moment or whatever it is that we may be dealing with, we all deal with different things, we think that, that that's easily smoothed over in this arena here, but we're forgetting about this and how it displeases God and how God hates this sin. So the one who fears God reverence Him, trust Him, loves Him, wants to be obedient, will fear sin. The greatest weapons on the battlefield against sin is the fear of Yahweh and submitting all of our deeds to Him for appraisal through the Word. And then number three is having our minds saturated with Yahweh's truth. 
You've heard the verse this morning, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Saturate your mind with the word of God. When you start crowding that word up into your mind and into your heart, you begin to think thoughts after God, thinking His thoughts, centering yourself on Him, not some sort of meditation and emptying your mind, but you're thinking about Scripture, you're thinking about what He thinks about this, you begin to crowd out the darkness in your mind with light. How to strive to live righteously and fight sin? Commit your works to Yahweh, fear Yahweh, and saturate yourself with the Word of Yahweh. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for the privilege to share Your Word. I thank You for the lessons that I have learned, and I pray, Lord, that You would take uh, Your Word today and plant it in the hearts of Your people that we might seek to honor You in every area of our life, cleaning out our closets and even the small boxes of things that we keep You at arm's length with, that we will open those things up and begin to deal with sin radically and uh, how uh, sin is against you. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much. When we see the devastating effects and how sin permeates everything around us and your work through your Son on the cross, the perfect sacrifice that pays for our sins, we are so grateful and thankful for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at our sins, that we will deal with them, but then look back at the cross and continue to look at the cross and the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us that we could not do ourselves. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, folks. You are dismissed.